Good morning Church and uh, welcome to this our seventh in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. If um, you're joining us for the first time or not sure what that is, it's um, some teaching given by Jesus and recorded by Matthew in his Gospel in chapters 5 to 7 at the beginning of the New Testament. In some ways this is a daunting passage to unpack. John Stott described it as the most admired and resented section of the sermon and C.S. Lewis of Narnia fame said, I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. So let's see if we can begin to get to grips with what they were talking about. Matthew 5, 33 to 48 reads, Again, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfil to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The tricky part of these passages is that when you first read them, they seem quite straightforward and obvious, and it's really easy to skim across them but once we begin to mine into them a little more we realize that Jesus is proposing a radical change in behavior to his listeners and Matthew to his readers. Why? Because he was challenging his listeners on points of behavior which were completely culturally acceptable. He was opening their and in turn our eyes to see things as they and we have not previously seen them. Let me share a couple of stories with you to try and illustrate my point. Many years ago when we were still living in Leeds, um, I was working with the children's work and we were preparing for a bonfire night celebration and I was walking home from a meeting mentally running through what I needed to get in order to make a guy. As I was walking, suddenly my heart shattered and it was as if God was 
showing me something of his heart. And he was, it was as if to say, Nancy, how can you possibly celebrate the death and torturing of a man made in my image? And it really stopped me in my tracks. It was as if celebrating foiling the plot was okay, but celebrating the death of the man by burning the, the guy wasn't. It made me see something culturally acceptable through different eyes, and I've never made a guy since. Another story. Um, a few years ago, we were at the proms in the park, and this was something that women in my family have done for several years and all generations go and we take a picnic and we have great fun and you listen to the music and then towards the end of the evening the finale from the Albert Hall is live streamed and we're all in fine voice singing you know all the anthems at the end and at one point we're singing Raw Britannia and I looked over and this year my soon-to-be daughter-in-law had come with me and as we're all singing out the song the words I see that she's just not singing and has quite a serious face and I just looked over and she said I can't sing this song and it made me realize that as I was proudly singing Britain's never never shall be slaves there was a reason why her family were Jamaican and not African again something culturally acceptable to me Suddenly I was seeing through different eyes. If I was to try and unpack the entirety of these passages, it would take several weeks and a whole series of Sundays. Instead, I hope to unpack just enough for us to see what Jesus was saying to his listeners. and Matthew was recording for us, his readers. I think it's important that we realise, first of all, that Jesus picked these things to be examples. This is not a definitive list. It's just things he used to highlight kingdom thinking. The law is reflected in these passages and expanded upon. Um, you know, the law itself to me was an act of grace. It showed the newly freed people of Israel how to live well together, that's what we call the civic law, and how to live well for God, and that's what's recorded in the commandments. You know, they didn't have the Holy Spirit with them, as we do, and if you like, it's as if God set the bar at a low level of what could be achieved if they were obedient and willing. In these passages, Jesus expands the law, emphasising the spirit behind them. And he challenges us to raise the bar of our behaviour in response because we do have the spirit. You know, we aren't a society that swears a lot of oaths. In a court of law, you might be asked to. And in a marriage ceremony, we swear an oath. I remember as a child hearing people swear on my mother's grave or even myself saying it's a pinky promise. You know, all of these are ways for us to try and really convince people that we're serious. Now, ancient Israel, however, was a society which took oaths really seriously. 
In fact, God himself made oaths and he encouraged it amongst his people. Within that culture, if you swore an oath in the name of God, it was a gold standard guarantee that you would fulfil your promise. It was if once the Lord's name was invoked, it meant that you'd brought God himself into the issue. You had promised God himself. You know, this is what was at the heart of the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. We often think it's about using his name as a swear word, but actually it was about invoking oaths in his name and not keeping them. The trouble is, as time went on, Israel found ways to circumvent this. Rather than swear by God himself, they dropped the bar. They'd swear by the temple or by Jerusalem or by their own head. The thing is, this oath came with a get-out clause. It meant, you know, if they didn't keep that promise, then they wouldn't be calling judgment on themselves because they hadn't actually sworn on the name of the Lord. In fact, it got so bad that there ended up being in the Mishnah, uh, a series of um, points on what things you could lie about and things you shouldn't lie about. Their oaths actually had become worthless. And um, we might gasp in horror at this, you can lie about this or you can't lie about that. But, you know, in our culture, we're except, oh, it was just a little white lie as meaning it wasn't important. Again, when Jesus issues the challenge, uh, all you need to say is simply yes or no. He's not talking about the formal oaths that we take in law or in marriage. Even he followed the protocols for oath when he was on trial before the high priest. Raising the bar here, ask the question, can you and I live lives of such integrity and honesty that we need no oath or promise? in order for us to follow through and indeed for our word to be taken as a gold standard by others. If we're going to do something we are simply to say yes and to do it and if we're not going to we need to say no. It sounds really simple but to do so consistently in all areas of our lives at all times needs the presence and the constant help of the Holy Spirit. If we look at Jesus's second example, we need again to look at its context. When the law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's not saying if someone causes you to lose an eye, they must lose an eye as punishment. In fact, the original passages do not refer to punishment at all, but rather to compensation to the victim. We read in Exodus 21, 22, 24, that this was the law's way of dealing with accidental injury, to assess what compensation should be paid when one person injures another. His aim was to see justice done and to limit revenge. It sets the limits in the law. You know, we have to remember here that Jesus is addressing our personal attitudes rather than laying down rules. Jesus is not saying that retribution or compensation is wrong. It's a good legal principle. Rather, 
he's inviting us once again to outstrip and outclass the law with our generosity, both as a victim and as a compensator. Again, when he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. He's not invoking us to accept physical abuse, nor suggesting that we don't defend ourselves against physical violence. But rather, if someone does, or if someone attacks us verbally, you know, we can choose to not respond in kind. It might be well justified in the world's eyes, but in the kingdom, Christ is our model. When someone maligns our honesty, for example, we are challenged the, to resist the natural urge to defend our reputation by exposing them in their lies. We are in fact asked by Jesus to waive our rights just as he did when he went to the cross. Now we begin to see what both Scott and Lewis were meaning, I think. It takes so much faith to live this out. Here faith meaning that we trust in God's power. We trust in his wisdom and we trust in his goodness. We surrender our right to be protected by the law and trust instead that we are protected by his love for us. This is hard. And, you know, when we talk about perfect love casting out fear, this is it in practice. You know, it's fear that makes me worry what people think of me, what my reputation is, that, that makes me want an offence punished, that makes me jealous for my rights or to feel entitled. But if I know the Lord himself loves me and is my defender, I don't need to fear those things. Jesus has called us to live to an exceptionally high standard, the one he lived by. Impossible, you might say. Yes, and in our own strength it is. But this is why he sent the Holy Spirit to help us, to help us move up the ladder one step at a time. You know, if we fall, if we fail, that's okay. So long as we don't settle there. Instead, we need to reach out and take hold of his helping hand and allow ourselves to be pulled up and to go again in his love. Sadly, I don't have time to unpack every part of this passage, but read the rest of it in the same light. You know, don't just give your shirt, but your cloak that was protected by law. Being part of his kingdom here on earth is an invitation to exceptional living. In the third of our passages, we are again invited to take several steps up the ladder. We recognise the signs by now. Ye have heard it said. We know what comes next is going to challenge us yet again. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. You know, everything in us cries out against investing our time and our energy and our emotion, our finances on behalf of those who want to pull us down. It's the most natural feeling in the world. You know, we want to invest in those who are kind to us and make our lives better. And we can and we should. But not exclusively if we're part of God's kingdom. 
you know, we can see how Jesus' teaching in this sermon has been leading us upwards. We're to be people of integrity, those who don't need an oath to be trusted. We're to be people who give up their rights for vengeance and turn the other cheek. And now we're called to go one step further. We are to actively love those who hurt us. This doesn't necessarily mean we have to hold them with affection, that God might bring about that miracle. This is love that is an act of the will, a choice in how we regard and treat them rather than an emotion. You know, Jesus is referencing the civil law and it's often quoted by us Christians in the second part of the golden rule, to love your neighbour as yourself. Once again, the true meaning of that law had become skewed by the first century. In practice, it had come to mean, love your friends and those like you. As I was preparing this talk, inevitably God began to shine a light at my own heart. What it showed me was that my general response to people hurting me was for me to harden my heart and close down in self-defence. I might not seek to retaliate or want vengeance. And outwardly, there might be no change visible. But on the inside, the walls had gone up. Thing is, that is not the kingdom way. It's not trusting my protection to the love of God. It was not okay. And I had to repent of doing things in, in the world's way. I was not loving my enemies. Who are your enemies? Who sets out to make your life more difficult? at work, or in your family, in your neighbourhood. If we're to love them, we must forgive them and keep our hearts soft towards them. And if we're to pray for them, then we are to genuine, genuinely call God's blessing down on them. It's not a call to pretend we're not hurt or angry. It's not a call to bury our pain and let it fester. It's a call to acknowledge exactly how we feel, but to God, and to choose God's way instead of revenge. To trust in his love for you and I, in his power to change a situation or sustain us through it. To trust in his wisdom as to the when or the how or even the if he wants to change it and to trust in his goodness throughout it all. You know, I think it's impossible to fully surrender to God's love and still feel animosity for those he created in his image. The world may love those that love them in return, but we are called to a higher level. You know, we're not asked here to pay lip service to pray, to, to pray once as a tick box exercise, you know, we're called to earnestly pray for our enemies, to pray that God wouldn't punish them, but bless them instead, and to keep on praying that prayer until he releases us from it. I have over the years, I'm sure like you, prayed this prayer through gritted teeth, at other times with tears of pain running down my face and my heart exploding. But as we labour on our knees, the forgiveness and grace come into our heart and we learn to love our enemies as Jesus did and with this comes his peace.
to live the kingdom way is not easy and it is often countercultural. We are genuinely swimming upstream. But we must remember it's not a set of rules that we have to follow if we're to be accepted into his kingdom. Rather, it's because we have been accepted just as we are and because we know that we are loved that we aspire to live a different way. Do we trust him enough in his love and his care and his power and his wisdom to allow him to speak into our lives and point out where our culturally acceptable behaviour doesn't quite match up to that which the kingdom demands? Each of us needs to continually ask God to show us where we need to change so that we more clearly reflect the kingdom of God back into the world. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as our helper for this very purpose. You know, we have the amazing freedom and privilege to call on him day and night to help us to strengthen us, to teach us, and to pull us back up onto our feet when we fall. Thank you for listening and bless you.